Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the future of higher education. I'm here today with Shai Rashef, the founder and leader of the University of the People. Shai, it's great to be with you today. Great uh, to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Shai, you, you started your career as an educational entrepreneur, creating a very successful a test prep company, as well as one of the first e-learning companies. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about what, what led you to enter those areas um, in, in the early 2000s and, and, and how those two startups evolved? So I was involved in for-profit education in company that delivered um, test, mainly test prep, many other products, but the main business was test prep for hundreds of thousands of students tens of programs from kindergarten to college level. And among other things, we started the first online university in Europe through partnership with the British University of Liverpool. Uh, We pretty much were were the first university who had delivered universities uh, degrees, uh, white label, in a way, so we had partnership with the University of Liverpool, we delivered their master in uh, computer science and later on uh, their uh, business administration. And it was online and it was the first in Europe, early 2000, and that's where we saw, where I realized how powerful online learning can be. We had students from all over the world, they kept their jobs, stayed with their families and still get this great European education. At the same time, I also realized that for most people, it was nothing but wishful thinking. They couldn't afford it. It was simply too expensive. Uh, I ended up selling uh, that university. As I said, it was for profit. And the rest of my business uh, came to New York as on a semi-retirement just to realize that uh, it's not really for me. I'm too hyper. And I looked around and uh, I wanted to continue, but it was clear to me that I don't want to do more of the same. I have enough. It's my turn to give back. Uh, But for me, giving back uh, had to be in a way that will have an impact on the world. And that for me is obviously education, because when you think about it, when you educate one person, you can change a life. When you educate many, you can change the world. So I looked around. And I realized that everything that made this European university so expensive um, was already available for free. Open source technology, open educational resources, and the new phenomena of social networking where people share, teach, and learn from each other for free. So I told myself, well, all I have to do is to put it all together and create a a tuition-free university. So I did. I announced it in uh, Germany, early 2009. 
The next day, the New York Times wrote a page about it. And the following day, I already had hundreds of emails of professors who said, and other academics, this is an amazing idea. We want to help you build it. And they did. And this is the start of University of the People. Well, that's that's a wonderful origin story. Um, you, you make it sound very simple, saying all those elements were out there. But the idea of creating a, a university that could serve students anywhere for free or close to free, obviously you you pay in the University of the People model for the, the assessments. But um, as you were putting that model together, did you look at different variations? Were there other uh, types of institutions out there you were thinking of, whether at higher ed or I think Khan Academy was just starting to grow at this level at, at K through 12. And so I'm just curious because it, it, it's a very um, ambitious vision how, how you put those elements together. You know, I think that um, I think that uh, I uh, a few things. First of all, uh, when we started I didn't know of any tuition-free model that, on a big scale that uh, is out there. Um, but I thought that it can be done. And as I said, you know, I realized that it can be done. And it was clear to me, being in education for 25 years at the time, that, uh, there was, that not only that education can change someone's life, but also that there are so many people around the world who deserve higher education but can't get it. UNESCO stated in 2009, actually, that in 2025, three, three, four years from now, there will be 100 million people who will seek university seats that won't exist. And I said, wait a second, is there a better reason for the invention of the internet? That's exactly why we needed the internet, to spread the knowledge and, uh, and uh, bring the education to them. Uh, so I thought about this model. Uh, to be totally frank, I well, what I did look at, I, I didn't know if it would work because the, I came from for-profit education. I knew all the, uh, the for-profit universities, the online for-profit universities, and Phoenix, at the University of Phoenix at the time was the biggest. And I look at their model, and I realize that uh, if I were, if I have an offer that would be so attractive that will sell itself, and I don't need to spend marketing budget, and as non-profit, I don't need the margin. Actually, the cost of delivering the degree is a fraction of what it is. So I knew that I can do it in a much cheaper way. I also, so I knew that, you know, technology can be free. You don't need to pay for it. Uh, you can, uh, uh, you can uh, save a lot, of course, but not having, by not having buildings and uh, um, by uh, using whatever is out there. I didn't know how many volunteers we are going to have. You know, I, as I said, I did see that people are willing to help each other and help students for free. And there were websites where sites where professors came every day and helped students for free. So I said, well, it probably would work, but I didn't know how much. And I have to say that after announcing, that was my biggest surprise. The amount of goodwill that is out there shocked me. You know, we have now, well, 
we are slightly bigger now than the point that we started 12 years ago, but we have now 23,000 volunteers. It's unbelievable. It's people who actually came and said, we want to help. Uh, so that was the model. It was quite unique, even though I would say that I knew what I'm doing and or what I was doing because I ran a university. I know how university can be successful. What do you need for it to run smoothly? And even though it's a nonprofit from day one, we we were a business, business in terms of we have budget, we have KPIs, we checked ourselves monthly whether we meet the goals and the budget. So we are very, very careful with what we do and what we don't do. And that's probably one of the secrets of, it's not a secret, but the reasons of our success. Yeah. That's great. For, for those listeners who aren't familiar with the University of the People, could you say a little bit about how it operates in terms of students signing up, getting a degree, the, the, the role that the volunteers play? And you mentioned you had announced it in Germany, but, but you decided to go for a, a U.S. accredited model. So I'm curious if you could say, as you were building this out, why you'd chosen the U.S. versus a European or, or another system. Good. Well, I hope I'll, I'll remember all the questions. If not, yeah, sorry. <laughs> you can remind me. But you're right. I mean, University of the People, for those who don't know, is a nonprofit, tuition-free, accredited American online university that is there to open the gates to those who cannot afford higher education, either because it's too expensive. We all know the situation in the U.S., either because they live in countries where there aren't enough universities and, you know, Africa will be a great example where there aren't enough seats available, either because of cultural reasons, women in some countries are deprived from higher education, political reasons, undocumented in the U.S., refugees worldwide, and, and a lot of other reasons. And we use the Internet to bring, to bring education uh, to them. And we put the students, because our students come to us in order to have a better future, uh, we only offer business administration, computer science, and health science associate and bachelor degree, as well as MBA and master of education. And because the students, a lot of them coming, as I said, from hardship, and we have survivors of the genocide um, of Rwanda, the earthquake in Haiti, and they mentioned we have thousands of refugees, which needs a lot of support. We put them in small classes of 20 to 30, we mix them, by the way. Every time they take a class, it's 20 to 30 new students from 20 to 30 new countries. We do it in a way um, in a way to ensure that uh, they get this personalized attention. And we do it, uh, uh, we do it by, by um, using, using volunteers. Uh, however, anyone with high school diploma and proficiency in English can can start. We ask them to take two courses to see that they like our pedagogy to start with. You know, you need a self-discipline in order to study online. You need the motivation. Our pedagogy is peer-to-peer learning. Not, some people don't like it. So they need to go take these two courses, see that they like us. But for us, it's a great screening mechanism. Show us that you meet our academic standards. If you meet them, you get credit for these two courses and you continue with us. You do not 
if you can't make it, you can't make it. So you cannot continue with us. You can take the course again, but you cannot continue unless you pass it. Um, we did I forgot part of the question? No, no, that's great. The, the only part there you you mentioned that it was U.S. accredited, and so I'm curious what why you had decided on that approach. So you know the the point is it was very clear. We are. The only reason we exist is our students, and we do what our students need. Students around the world want American degree. The American higher education is the standard of quality, and everyone around the world want American accredited, accredited degree. Um, so we started as an American university. We are uh, licensed in California. Um, we saw how important it is for our students that we will be accredited, which obviously makes sense. So we, we received our initial accreditation in 2004. And, um, sorry, 2014. <laughs> and now that we see that students um, are asking about uh, additional regional accreditation, we are pursuing uh, another accreditation with WASC. So, you know, we are there, and the same goes with the, with the degrees that we offer. We chose those degrees that uh, help our students find a job or are in big demand in their country. So business administration, computer science are in big demand worldwide. Health science, you know, health science and teachers are what, or in education are what most countries, especially development, develop uh, countries need so that's why we offer them so we are there to serve the students or whatever they need that's what we do um and as we've discovered uh, worldwide through the pandemic one of the challenges with pivoting to virtual education is not everybody has access to a good internet connection broadband um and and for a lot of the students you're serving i know many of them in refugee camps others i assume that's an even greater hurdle how did you approach it in terms of the actual delivery model? You've mentioned small classes peer-to-peer, but are they a mix of in-person and virtual? Or how are you making sure that the students who would benefit are gaining access to the to the university? So, first of all, we our students can study anytime, anywhere, with any internet connection they have. So it's asynchronous, and it's all text-based, which means that um, they can come to the, you know, I, a couple of months ago, I got an email from one of our students who is a refugee in Turkey, and he said, you know, I'm walking on the streets looking for Wi-Fi, and I found Wi-Fi, so I'm, stay, I'm texting you. The idea is that we have students who go to internet cafe every other day, download the material, work offline, and then go back, upload what they wrote, and download the new material. You can study with a computer, laptop, a tablet, a cell phone, any internet connection. You don't need broadband. So for this for this very reason, when um, we started, because this is the type of population, we decided that we only use text. Along the years, when we realized the overwhelming majority of our students do have broadband, we start inserting videos. But the videos in our case are optional. You have broadband, watch this, we send them to watch video. 
you don't have broadband, here just just text. Now our courses, I'll describe maybe how uh, the course work. Um, actually, it will explain it. So you know when students sign up, he's being placed as I mentioned with twenty students from uh, twenty. Um, from usually 20 different countries. And with them, they take a course. A course is eight, week lo eight weeks long, nine weeks, including the exam. Every week starts on Thursday, ends on Wednesday. We have now 60, over 65,000 students coming from over 200 countries and territories. So we need not only to mix them, but to make sure that time zone, it works for everyone. So we start on Thursday, Ends every week, starts on Thursday, ends on Wednesday, and next May, Wednesday. So those who like to work on the weekend, or those who don't like to work on the weekend, the weekend is in the middle, you choose what you want to do. But when you go into the classroom, you find the lecture notes of the week. Sorry, first of all, you find the profile of the 20 students like, like uh, yourself, and the profile can be anywhere uh, from your name all the way to a video of, I don't know, of your cat that you decided to share with the group. And the week, let's describe a week, and let's let's say that the first student who goes into the class is Chinese, simply because the morning starts earlier in, in China. So our first uh, student, the Chinese, Thursday morning, he goes into the class and he finds the lecture notes of the week, the video of the week, if there is a video, reading assignment of uh, the week, a homework assignment, and discussion question. And the discussion question is the core of our studies. So after reading the, reading the material and everything, the students, our Chinese friend, goes into the discussion question. He sees the discussion question, and he decides uh, to... Um, he decides to be the first... Uh, he decided to comment, to put his own original contribution to the class discussion. The second student, let's say that she's Indonesian, she does the same. But at that point, she comes like an hour later, but she already sees what the Chinese wrote. So she decides to comment on what the Chinese wrote. And let's say that the third student is American. A few hours later, he goes into the class, he sees what the Chinese wrote, what the Indonesian wrote, and he decides to comment as well. The Chinese is very likely to go back to the class to see what his fellow students had to say about his point, and the discussion starts developing between them. All week long, is, there is a discussion among the students developing uh, along the week under the supervision of the instructor. So every week, every student must have at least one original contribution, at least three times to comment on what other people say. And the instructor is there every day to read everything that is going on in the class and to get involved only if, and if there is need for him to, uh, him or her to get involved, if uh, someone says something wrong and nobody correct the mistake. If someone asks a question and nobody was a, uh, willing to was was able was a whether it's a mistake and needs to be corrected whether it is a question that nobody knows the answer or maybe just the discussion went to the wrong direction and needs to be redirected so for that the instructor is there toward the end of the week the students take a quiz to see that they master the material they hand in their homework which is, which is assessed anonymously and randomly by three of their peers 
under the supervision of the instructors who has the right to override the grades that they gave each other. So every week they get grade for their contribution to the class discussion, for their uh, quiz, for their uh, homework, and for their log, if there was a log that week, and they move to the next week. Eight weeks in a row, by the ninth week, they take a final exam, which is proctored, and they get grades for the for the course and go to the next week. Uh, it's an v- extremely intense um, commitment. It's very interactive. It requires students 15 to 20 hours per course. We don't let them take more than two courses at a time. Um, you know, one of the reasons that uh, I mentioned the two courses that they take as they start you know, we tell them it's 15 to 20 hours and the human nature is to say, well, that's for others. I can do it in an hour. Well, so, one hour goes by and you are gone because <laughs> you can't make it in an hour. It's very intense. It's very intensive, but it's very interactive. I think, you know, talking about um, the pandemic, um, you're right. I mean, you know, a, a lot of uh, the fact that 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 we are uh, asynchronous and it's all text-based. Students can study from every part of the world. But I think that another difference is that our pedagogy is, is extremely interactive. And a lot of universities, took them a long time and some, some still don't, understand that the success on the internet is interaction. Get the students involved, otherwise they don't succeed and, you know, shutting down campus doors and, and going online and have two hours Zoom by the professor is not online learning. So we develop our pedagogy and uh, we see it successful. So, yeah. Can, can you say a little more about the instructors? You mentioned now you have 23,000 volunteers overall. Sounds like this is quite a demanding ask of them in, in, in overseeing that week-long chat and then being able to make sure the grading is consistent. And, and I also know that the accreditors, having gone through that process, my, you know, ourselves at many U.S. universities, they're very, you know, demanding of assuring the quality control in terms of typically, right, with full-time employees as faculty, still to ensure that, that you have all of that in place. How are you doing that with this vast volunteer workforce to satisfy them that, you know, your degree is being delivered to the the standard that that is being expected. So, first of all, you're right. I mean, it's very demanding. We have 23,000 volunteers, 15,000 of them are academics. Uh, But the reality is that about 1,000 of them are actually teaching in the classes. We don't need that many. Um, so we can't offer the opportunities to everyone, but they are they are they are volunteers, and we treat them as volunteers, even though uh, it is it is quite demanding. Um, typically, typically instructors spend ten to fifteen hours a week, which is you know it's quite quite demanding. Uh, all of them need um, to have the relevant degree. Uh, we give high priority to those who uh, come with with online experience, but um, and but we train them when when they come to us, and I guess that the fact that hardly any one of them uh, leave us means that uh, they like working with us. I, I think that you know we are a mission driven 
institution and the type of students that we have, the diversity uh, that we have, hardly any university uh, has. I mean, looking about, I said that we have 65,000 students, 25% of them are American. But when you look at our American students, uh, 30% of them are black compared to 14% nationally. First generation, 60%, compared to 33 nationally, some say that even it's even lower. 50% of our students are parents, compared to 22 average. And by the way, 30% of our faculty are black, compared to 6% nationally. So, you know, we are, we are a different kind, different kind of university. And for a lot of professors, whether they are retired professors who like to teach, whether it's tenure professors elsewhere that want to give back, or whether they are young professors who want their PhDs, who want experience, we are a great place, and you are exposed to amazing uh, students with amazing stories, and, you know, the, the, it's, it fills you up. So it's, it's really a great feeling to, to, uh, to work with, uh, with our students. But saying that, uh, first of all, as, as I said, we ensure the standards. Uh, I think that every term I have a few cases where we ask uh, some of our volunteers to stop teaching. They are not meeting our standards. And then I get emails from instructors saying, we don't understand the rules of the game. I'm a volunteer. How can you fire me? (laughs) (laughs) But that's the case. I mean, if you are not up to our standards, you can't teach us now. You know, you you were talking about our accreditation. And so basically what they check is they check our curriculum. They check how much interaction there is with the, the students. But the most important thing is the learning outcome, whether the students achieve the learning outcome and whether we measure them and we can, uh, we can um, show them that we meet the standards. And by the way, we have uh, articulation agreements, uh, well, we are we have um, actually collaboration with Harvard Business School and NYU and Berkeley and and uh, Edinburgh and um, LIU and uh, McGill and uh, IFAT, which is a women university in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And in many of them, the, the agreements are different. But Berkeley, for example. Our students, after two years with us, when they receive their associate degree, they can apply. And if, they, if they're being accepted to, they meet the Berkeley standards, uh, they, uh, they accept their associate degree and they can uh, continue to complete the degree the, the other two years to, to get the bachelor degree. But that's, you know, beyond the amazing opportunity for our student. For us, it basically means that... Uh, it basically means that uh, Berkeley, uh, che- well, Berkeley accept our degree because they checked what we're teaching and they decided that it meets their standards. So, you know, uh, we have a high standards. By the way, the first students who went to Berkeley through this agreement, she completed her um, degree in Berkeley with a straight A and was just accepted to a graduate school in uh, MIT. So. So that, that's pretty good validation right there. Yeah. Right. Could, could you, could, could you say a little, yeah. Yeah. Could, could, could you say a little about, you, you've mentioned the huge growth. I think you had, 
had 177 when you started in in 2009. Now you're at 65,000. And so what is the profile look like of of the students and the faculty in terms of, of, of age, country, geographic distribution? So the average age is um, late 20s or early 30s, even though we have six over 6,000 refugees, 10% of our student population are, are refugees, and they actually are younger um, because a lot of them are Syrian who had to were forced to leave the country and stop their education, and they come back to us right away. But a lot of our students are older, people who either start college and drop out because they were not serious, or people who went right to work after uh, high school, but a few years later they realized that they got stuck and there is a glass ceiling and they need the education in order to move on, so they come to us. Uh, During the pandemic, we have a lot of uh, students who lost their jobs uh, following the, you know, the, the recession and the situation, and many of them either need to complete their degrees because they never completed their degrees, or they need to change career. They tend to be older. I mentioned uh, that we have a lot of parents and a lot of first-generation students. Our, our, um, so they, they, the parents obviously tend to be, um, to be older. By, by the way, Miko, the students who. Um, the first students who made it to Berkeley studied while she gave birth to her child. And, uh, <laughs> you know, for yeah, for women who are stay-home moms and then especially those who are uh, gave birth recently, it's a great opportunity because, you know, you can study anytime, anywhere, as I mentioned. Yeah, so this is the profile of the students. In terms of faculty, again, I mean, they, almost all of them are from the U.S. We are a U.S. university, and almost all the faculty are from the U.S. Um, and uh, again, it's it's between young PhDs all the way to retired professors. So it's really mixed, and they're coming from all sort of uh, of uh, universities. Uh, we started recently, uh, September, uh, half a year ago, a university in Arabic. Um, where we offer an associate degree in business administration uh, in Arabic, mainly for Syrian refugees. Um, And uh, we have refugees who teach for us and refugees who uh, study with us. And uh, simply because we had two years, in the last two years, 125,000 Syrian refugees who applied to the university and couldn't make it because of the language. So we decided to develop a, a program in Arabic, and uh, now we offer it in Arabic. The Arabic is actually being uh, taught from the from the Middle East. So we have, the students are from all over. Many of them, as I mentioned, are Syrian refugees, which are also spread in the entire region. But uh, the people who work there, um, whether it is the administration or the or the, the faculty are from Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Turkey, you know, all over the region. Yeah. Great. Um, so, so obviously to grow a, a university this quickly and, and serve so many uh, students around the world is a, is a huge task. Besides yourself uh, and the, 
the 23,000 volunteers, are, are there many full-time employees of University of the People? And, and, and what are they doing? What are their roles? So the system that, that we build, um, actually almost from the very beginning, is that we have volunteers, but the volunteers are backed up by paid personnel. So if our provost and the vice provost are um, our volunteers, we have an executive vice president for academic operations uh, who actually back them up. Um, and the reason for that is that, first of all, we want to ensure that uh, if they want to step down, um, you know, someone, someone is there to replace them right away until we find another volunteer. But also, uh, when you have volunteers, you really want to, you to take the essence from them. So our deans are volunteers. But, you know, when you look at, at deans at a regular university, well, large part of their job, I wouldn't say 80 or 90 percent, but large part of their job is actually administration. And we take the administration from our volunteers and the paid personnel doing it. So when we talk to, uh, for example, to uh, Dalton Conley, who is our dean, uh, uh, health science dean, he's in Princeton, and we we so we come and need his advice and have issues in the program, academic issues, you know. He's the person to answer, but he doesn't need with the administration. So we save a lot of work from them and, and ensure that they get, uh, we get from them only the things that only them, then only they can give us. Uh, so first of all, this system work, um, work great, but you know, that the admission is done by paid personnel. Um, the legal, well, we had a pro bono law firms and pro bono counsel. Now we actually brought it into a paid personnel. We, and we still use a lot of pro bono legal advice. Uh, student services. Uh, we have program advising. Program advising, every student from the day he gets in has a program advisors that uh, help them navigate through uh, throughout the degree. They're all paid personnel. And they spread, you know. All over the world, so that's how we ensure that the system works. Yeah, and and given that you're not charging the students other than for the exam, how, how are you, how are you funding that core employee base? So, last year we ended up with a budget of thirteen million dollars. Um, to give you the comparison and. I guess you know it by yourself, but by yourself, but you know, I compare ourselves to NYU, which we are partner with and we have mutual friends there. And NYU has 51,000 students. At the time when we had last year, we had uh, last term, we had 57,000 volunteers. So we were, you know, in, in, a, in a way similar in size, we were slightly bigger. And actually, another similarity is that both of us has a budget, have a budget of 13. With one difference, they had $13 billion budget, we had $13 million budget. Now, our ability, so we have, you know, it's, <laughs> their budget is 1,000 uh, times uh, bigger than us, 
which is not a fair comparison. We are not a research university. We don't have tenure professors. We don't have building. There are the reasons why we can do it. But we, we are operating on a very lean budget. We give the students only what they need for their education and nothing but. So we don't have extracurricular. Well, we hardly have extracurricular activities. We don't have a, a support that other, you know, psychological support and, and medical support, which simply don't have it. So uh, we operate from every part of the world. We don't have buildings. So we have a lot of things that, and obviously the volunteers. So we, we save costs. However, we charge the students when they get to the exam, $120 for uh, each end of course exam, which makes it 4800 for a full BA degree. And by the way, if they don't have the money, we try to offer them as much scholarships as we can. This ends up to be, this, this with, with uh, the grant that we got, uh, ends up to be $13 million. Uh, this is enough for us, for our operation. So, uh, and because, because we operate, as, as I said, on a shoestring, and it is enough. So the money, by the way, the money that we get from the students cover all of our operation. Donations for us is either for the development of new programs or for scholarships. But if you just take the operation, we do not need uh, actually donations. We do need them, obviously, for other things which are extremely important, but we are uh, financially sustainable only from that amount. Yeah, uh, different That's model. amazing. Very different yeah. model. And, and can you say a little in terms of what you see as the future growth? You, you've gotten to, you know, so quickly to, to serving now over 60,000 students. What, what, what do you see over the next five years in terms of where, where you'd like to be in terms of both numbers, but also will the degree offerings change, do you think? You, you mentioned adding Arabic. Are, are you planning to expand it? So the best answer I can give is that we will continue growing as long as uh, there is a demand out there and as long as we can maintain the quality. The second we see that uh, we are um, need to sacrifice the quality, we'll stop growing that second. Uh, however, assuming that we can maintain the quality, we will continue growing as long as there is a need out there uh, until other... Um, other um, will replicate what we do and all the students in the world will be served because we're building a model. We're building a model to show that higher education can be affordable, accessible, with the right quality. And all the students in the world deserve to have the opportunity of higher education. And we show that, that it can be done. So our growth part of partially is to serve these people, but also to show others that this model is, you know, the fact that we are financially sustainable and that we are accredited is a great sign. And I'm sure that it won't take long before others will replicate us, whether it is uh, other uh, entrepreneurs, whether it is other universities or other countries. And we'll continue until the world doesn't need us. And I found myself once saying it, I'll say it again, we'll continue to grow until one day we'll wake up and realize that all the students in the world are being served. So there is no need for us. And then we'll go to back to sleep and wake up with another dream. But until then, 
will continue, will continue growing. Um, I think that along the way, slowly, we'll add more programs. You know, because if you have uh, a thousand students, you can split them between two degrees. When you have a hundred thousand students, you can split them between more than two degrees and still be efficient. Uh, regarding other languages, you know, it's it's I am not sure for two reasons. First of all, uh, even though Arabic was easy for us relatively, because all of our IT is being developed in the West Bank, Palestine. So they are, they are native Arab speaking, so it was easy for them to make the conversion. Going into Chinese, that would be harder, or, or even Spanish. Uh, but I think that if we get the funding, and that's the major thing, if we get the funding, we, we are likely, we, we might go into other languages after doing studies, but, uh, and the same goes to other programs, but we only offer programs that we feel that uh, there is a, that, are important for our students to have. So, yeah. When we first spoke, uh, I mentioned to you the idea of the income share agreement, because um, even at that very low price of 4800 for the full degree, that's beyond many of the, the people you're most wanting to serve. Um, I think you had mentioned that you since uh, experimented with this. So I was wondering if you could share what that looks like, and is that something you see may help you to further expand the access for them? Uh, we partially tried it, and I have to admit that we should do much more, learn it more and try it more. But what we have done, uh, we, uh, we develop a program that is called Paid Forward, where we expect our students, when they graduate, uh, to pay percentage of their, of their uh, income uh, to pay for the next students, not for us, but to pay forward for the next student. Um, we already have hundreds of students who participate in, uh, well, graduates and students. Some students say, I can start now, I don't need to graduate, but a lot of graduates. Um, still, we need, to, we need to do much more. I think, you know, we believe that uh, what we do, we are changing the world of higher education. And they are, you know, they are part of our community, and I think that whether they, whether our students paid for the assessment or got a scholarship, they study tuition free, and as such, I feel that they have the obligation to pay forward for the next student. Um, we're building a community of students. We are young, but uh, you know, I think that uh, it's going very well, and I hope it will continue. Well, I'm sure it will continue, so, yeah. That's great. C could you share a little about what your day, your week looks like? You're, you're, you've built a very non-traditional institution. How do you end up spending your time? Uh, how do I spend my time? Well, that's... Uh, so, first of all, I have to admit that that's the only thing I do. And uh, I spend pretty much 16 hours a day working. And it depends where I am. But assuming I am in New York, where I spend most of my time, my day starts either at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning <laughs> because we have people in India and we have people in uh, Palestine and, you know, we have people all over the Middle East and Africa and Europe. So I start there. And uh, then, you know, when the morning starts in the U.S., 
I moved to the U.S. and then you have, we have California because we are uh, we have people in California. So it spread all over the uh, <laughs> all over the the entire day. I think that you know I spend um, I would say half of my time uh, relating to fundraising about. Uh, the rest is being split between maybe 40%, and the rest is being split between operation and, um, well, all the rest is operation if you include PR in the operation and meeting uh, academics. And so, yeah, I think that 60% is the day-to-day -day operation, including uh, talking to the media, speaking in conferences, speaking in... Uh, uh, friends, colleagues, academics, uh, yeah. So, but I think that I spend 100% uh, of my time uh, enjoying it. So that's actually the best answer. Uh, well, and it's extraordinary what you've achieved. Just to finish, for those listeners who are interested either in, in potentially studying with you or becoming a volunteer um, uh, instructor or faculty member, can, can you... Just share what the best way to get in contact with you is. Sure. So go to our website, uopeople.edu, and you can contact me. You can contact admission. Any Anyone you want to contact, you will see all the addresses again, uopeople.edu. And uh, sure, we are there for uh, anyone who wants to study, anyone who wants to volunteer, and anyone who anyone who just want to learn more. So, sure. Great. Well, thank you so much, Shai. It's been a, a real pleasure talking with you and good luck with the, the next phases of growth to come. Well, and thank you for this interview. It was great talking to you and uh, I, had, I had much fun. So